Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Radio Westeros, Episode 76, The Others. Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm one of your hosts, Lady Guinevere, and with me, as always, is Yoke Boy. Yeah, hi everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today for this new episode all about the others. Following our recent episode on dragons, today we'll be analysing their mysterious icy counterparts. So today we'll cast our gaze up to the lands of always winter in the far north as we consider who the others are and what they want. We'll begin with a discussion about how and why George has designed them to be such formidable antagonists in this series, including a look at their appearance, their powers, and behavior. Then we'll move on to consider their possible origins, taking a close look at what was going on in Westeros over 8,000 years ago. From the few snippets of information we have on that long-forgotten era, which details could be pertinent in theorising how the others came to be? Who were the tribe of the First Men living in the far north? What magic were the children of the forest involved in? Today we'll be poring over the fine details and posing many questions. Next, we'll look at the Cataclysm of the Long Night, where the others marched south, aiming to turn Westeros into an icy hellscape. Centered around a reading of Old Nan's classic tale, we'll talk about the horrors and destruction wrought on Westeros by the others, their undead servants, and those packs of pale white spiders big as hounds. We'll take a look at how mankind was able to defeat this existential threat, and what went on in the aftermath with the Wall, the Night's Watch, and a certain Lord Commander who had a taste for blue-eyed women. Yeah, and moving on, we'll link what happened in that distant past to the current timeline as we walk through the recent appearances of the others in the text and analyse what George is telling us about the upcoming apocalyptic invasion that will surely serve as the climax to this series. By the end of this episode, we hope to tell you all there is to know about George's chief supernatural antagonists. This will be a packed presentation, chock full of mystery and intrigue. And before we begin, as always, we want to give a quick shout out to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Palest Milk Glass patrons, Alex, Crispy, the Song of Ice, Seth, Kelly, Laura, Sister Winter, Moltu, John Wargarian, and M.T. Walls, first of his name, as well as B-Word and Mr. J, the Bear and the Maiden Fair, 
and Sir Tim of House Jib Jab Hot Dog Shop. House motto, we forge the chains we wear in life. If you want to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash Radio Westeros, and you could be getting early access to episodes, personalized shoutouts, and more. Thanks to all our patrons. We couldn't do this without you. And now it's time to get started with the others. Necromancy animates these whites, yet they are still only dead flesh. Steel and fire will serve for them. The ones you call the others are something more. Demons made of snow and ice and cold. The ancient enemy. The only enemy that matters. Back in the early 90s, George R.R. Martin decided to take a break from writing in the TV industry to begin work on a new novel series. Early in those embryonic stages of story development, he was leaning towards writing a trilogy that was more historical fiction than fantasy. However, George had been a huge fantasy fan all his life, fixated with J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, which he still rereads regularly. When a fan asked him in 1999 why he'd chosen to write fantasy, he cited his Tolkien obsession and answered that eventually writers write what they read. Yet it took his friend and fellow author Phyllis Eisenstein to nudge him away from historical fiction and towards epic fantasy when she convinced him to include dragons in his story. And once he had made the crucial decision to include dragons, it paved the way for him to employ fantasy tropes, magic and other supernatural creatures. With dragons being embodiments of fire, perhaps he felt a need to balance the elements in his story with a degree of symmetry. Yeah, he obviously saw this elemental conflict as being central to the story, eventually naming the saga A Song of Ice and Fire. When a fan asked George what the ice and fire in the title alluded to, he said, I had these other elements in the story beyond the struggle for power at court, the others beyond the wall and the dragons. That suggests ice and fire, but that's not the only possible meaning. I like titles that can have many meanings. And so, at some point between 1991 and 1993, George decided to create a parallel to the fiery dragons by including a race of magical ice beings he called the Others. We know that by 1993, the Others were central to his plans because of a letter he sent to his editor that roughly outlined the thrust of the various plot lines he was working on. In the letter, he said, The greatest danger of all comes from the north, from the icy wastelands beyond the wall, where half-forgotten demons out of legend, the inhuman Others, raise cold legions of the undead and the never-born and prepare to ride down on the winds of winter to extinguish everything that we would call life. It's interesting to see him use the phrase the never-born in that letter. Given there's no mention of the never-born in the text so far, we can assume he was still refining the concept of the others before A Game of Thrones was finally released in 1996. And we'll circle back to speculate what he meant by the Neverborn later in the episode. Although the others remain on the fringes both geographically and story-wise, even as far as five books in, it's clear that they'll one day come to the fore and dominate the story. When that day arrives, Westeros will have to put politics aside and confront the threat together, or humanity could face annihilation and extinction. 
Readers expect an epic battle for survival to be the central subject of the final book, currently called The Dream of Spring, where humans, perhaps aided by dragons, finally face off against the others. But it's not going to be an easy war. While the focus of the story has thus far been mainly of court politics and human conflict, George opens the saga with a glimpse of the other's unique power and then repeatedly reminds us of their looming presence throughout the story. The author plays on the dramatic irony of the reader knowing their astonishingly dark capabilities from the outset, while many characters in-universe doubt their very existence and continue to act within their blinkered spheres of self-interest. Certainly, George wants to comment on the human ability or inability of people in power to put aside their day-to-day conflicts about money, lands, and titles and band together for the good of all humanity. From a meta perspective, it's no coincidence that there's a series of wars ravaging Westeros right before the others are about to invade. George wants humans to be at their weakest and their most divided, and the others at their strongest, to really give the foe the fullest advantage and sell them as a significant threat with the potential to wipe out all of our favorite characters. And to make the reader really fear the others, George has designed them to be as merciless and formidable as possible. He's mixed fantasy and horror tropes together to create a species both memorable and terrifying. They fight with sharp icy blades that can easily shatter castle-forged steel. They can make the temperature so devastatingly cold that just being in their vicinity brings the possibility that you might freeze to death. And most horrific of all, they wield powers of necromancy that enable them to raise the dead as undead slaves ready to fight as an army on their behalf. Just with these brief bullet points, the others are intriguing, so let's dive a bit deeper into what we know about them and their powers, starting with their appearance, to see what else we can glean. The first notable characteristic of the others is that, while being inhuman in certain respects, they are humanoid-like with two arms, two legs, they're capable of marching, riding on horses, and fighting with swords. This might seem like an obvious observation, but it's worth considering how similar they are to humans, given that as readers, we should be wondering about their origin story. But despite their human qualities, the others differ in many ways. The blend of humanoid features and fantasy horror elements make them both similar and different from us, which makes for interesting villains, simultaneously relatable and alien. Unlike dragons, which are more like magical animals, the others are like magical humans. As we said, this enables them to behave like us, engaging in sword combat, for instance, while at the same time giving them formidable magical advantages, dark superpowers in effect. These are not mindless beasts or savage monsters, but highly intelligent beings who are going to have their own clever methods and tactics when it comes to war. We see glimpses of their skill and coordination in the A Game of Thrones prologue when they attack Sir Waymar Royce. Altogether, they have all the advantages of being human, but with a magical edge. The people of Westeros are going to have to dig deep if they are to overcome a foe that holds such advantages. 
Given that defeat for mankind would mean not just death, but potentially a fate worse than death, being resurrected as a zombie to serve the others perhaps forever, George has raised the stakes as high as he possibly could. If Westeros was to fall, then maybe the others would continue on and extinguish all the warm-blooded life in Essos and beyond as well. So perhaps the fate of the world hinges on some of the characters stepping forward and being brave, smart, and coordinated enough to defeat the others before it's too late. It's a great test for humanity, and in a saga infused with so much grayness, George has designed villains that seem to have no redeeming qualities and don't elicit any degree of sympathy from us. Whatever their motives, from a human perspective, the others are pure evil that want to snuff out life itself, the common enemy of all mankind. And George has clearly given a lot of thought not only to the others' abilities, but also their appearance. Whereas dragons are well-established archetypal creatures, instantly recognisable and residing in our collective unconsciousness, the others don't come directly from any such archetype, and as such, George had to design them from the ground up. That's not to say that they don't draw inspiration from supernatural creatures such as the Fae of Irish mythology, but certainly George had a lot more thinking to do than he did with dragons. It's also far more difficult for him to transmit what he was seeing in his head into the mind of the reader. Yeah, when artist Tommy Patterson came to draw the others for the A Game of Thrones graphic novel, he found it extremely difficult to realize them. He said, This was one of the two hardest tasks we had to do conceptually. Those familiar with the books will know that George barely describes these beings in the text, except extremely cryptically. And I should know, I did the document searches. They need to be creepy and scary and numinous and essentially unseen, while also being very much on the page, since this is a visual medium. So that's the challenge, to make memorable supernatural foes that have an inherent vagueness and mystery about them. If we look at the first time they're described, we get this from Will's prologue. The others made no sound. Will saw movement from the corner of his eye, pale shapes gliding through the wood. He turned his head, glimpsed a white shadow in the darkness. Then it was gone. And a few lines later, George elaborates. A shadow emerged from the dark of the wood. It stood in front of Royce. Tall it was, and gaunt and hard as old bones, with flesh pale as milk. While all of this description is cloaked in the aforementioned vagueness, George did give them one distinctive feature to make them truly memorable. Their eyes. The passage goes, Will saw its eyes, blue, deeper and bluer than any human eyes, a blue that burned like ice. Their eyes, described as shining like bright blue stars elsewhere, stick in our imagination. But George uses similar eye descriptions for the other's undead slaves, known as whites, on a practical level drawing a direct connection that signifies which dead bodies have been enthralled to the others. So with the blue eyes and white skin, we do have a vivid mental picture in our heads, but George's conversations with Tommy Patterson are of interest because George had to submit further details in order to bring them to life in the visual medium. The artist added this about their exchanges. George, Daniel, Trisha and I knew the robotic look was not right, but as for what was, 
I had many talks with George. He told me of the ice swords and the reflective camouflaging armor that picks up the images of the things around it, like a clear still pond. He spoke a lot about what they were not, but what they were was harder to put into words. Here is what George said in one email: "The others are not dead. They are strange, beautiful. Think, oh, the she made of ice, something like that—a different sort of life, inhuman, elegant, dangerous." Perhaps when we discuss the others, the mental picture we conjure has been shaped by the HBO show's depiction of scary, wrinkly, dead-faced horror villains. But with Tommy's comments here, we can see that George is going for something more elven, beautiful and elegant and ethereal. We mentioned the influence of Irish mythology earlier, and George's comment about the others looking like the she made of ice caused much excitement back in 2012 when they were published. While it should be noted that George's comparison to the she referred to their appearance and not necessarily their character, it's certainly interesting to know for sure that he was drawing from Irish mythology in their design. In Gaelic folklore, the she, spelled S-I-D-H-E, related to the word banshee, are a forest-dwelling supernatural race similar to fae and elves. They are said by some to be fallen angels, so we can imagine them as graceful and beautiful as George envisions the others to be. They are appeased by offerings similar to the others, as we'll see, and are not mentioned directly by locals, but instead by vague terms such as the folk, which again sounds very othery. Perhaps George was influenced by W. B. Yeats's poem "The Hosting of the She," written in 1908. Esteemed Yeats analyst M. L. Rosenthal said this about the poem: "She are more than mere fairies in the ordinary sense; they are supernatural beings of a more exalted character." Yeats sometimes thinks of them as including all mythical heroes, and at other times makes them quite sinister. To be touched by them is to be set apart from other mortals—an ambivalent condition common to all who succumb to enchantment. And while George was clearly inspired by this mythology, we should keep in mind that he has confessed that he enjoys lifting aspects from history and mythology, but gives them his own twist. As such, George doesn't just describe them as she, but she made of ice. The others are inherently icy beings, evidenced when Samwell kills one with a dragonglass dagger and watches him melt away into a puddle. But not only are they themselves of ice, they also have a magical mastery of the substance that can be used to their advantage. When a fan asked George in 1999 about what the other swords are made from, he answered, "Ice." But not like regular old ice. The others can do things with ice that we can't imagine and make substances of it. So the others carry formidable blades made of magical ice that George wants us to see early on when the plucky young Night's Watchman Sir Waymar Royce naively yet bravely accepts the challenge of opposing another in single combat. Here's the description of our first glimpse of an other sword from that prologue. No human metal had gone into the forging of that blade. 
It was alive with moonlight, translucent, a shard of crystal, so thin that it seemed almost to vanish when seen edge on. There was a faint blue shimmer to the thing, a ghost light that played around its edges, and somehow Will knew it was sharper than any razor. When Waymar faces off against the other, his Castleforge steel blade, which is considered high quality and expensive, completely shatters when it touches the ice blade. It says, A scream echoed through the forest night, and the long sword shivered into a hundred brittle pieces, the shards scattering like a rain of needles. Given that few swords in Westeros would be of better quality than Waymar's, it's clear how much of an advantage the others have over man with their elemental mastery of ice. And not only do they use the substance to form their swords, it seems they shape their armor from it, too. Here's the first description we get. The armor seemed to change color as it moved. Here it was white as new-fallen snow, there black as shadow, everywhere dappled with the deep gray-green of the trees. The patterns ran like moonlight on water with every step it took. Paired with the description George gave Tommy Patterson of, quote, reflective camouflaging armor that picks up the images of the things around it like a clear still pond, we see that the others have no trouble blending in with their surroundings, almost like the Predator from the Predator movies and comics. Given the others move in near silence, they are certainly difficult to spot in a snowy environment, and so their magical armour not only protects them, but renders them almost invisible. In the Predator movie, a group of soldiers unexpectedly find themselves turning from hunter to hunted, which is precisely what happens with the Night's Watch in this prologue. It's difficult to defend yourself against an enemy you can barely see. Another aspect of the others related to ice is their speech. When Will perceives that they're communicating with one another, here's how he describes it. The other said something in a language that Will did not know. His voice was like the cracking of ice on a winter lake. This language has actually been developed by fantasy linguist David J. Peterson, and although it was intended to be used on the show, it's always interesting to know what Peterson's been up to, given that he often communicates with George on such matters. The other's language is called Scroth, and Peterson clearly gave a lot of thought to creating what's described in A Game of Thrones. And if you're interested in learning more about Scroth, you can Google David J. Peterson, S-K-R-O-T-H, and find out more about the phonetics and language structure that he's created. But however Scroth sounds, the big takeaway from the Will prologue is that the others do communicate in their own language. It shows that they are capable of complex coordination, that they are highly intelligent, and that to some extent they have culture. These are not Tolkien's orcs or some other generic foe that can be easily outsmarted by humans, but instead seem to be able to overmatch us in most regards. One such advantage is their apparent ability to control their environment by making everything around them very cold. When Will first sees them, he starts shivering, and Waymar asks why it's so cold. Then in A Storm of Swords, Samwell wonders if they bring the cold, or if they only travel where it is cold. But it does seem that they weaponize the weather to stun their enemies. They've even been known to kill people and turn them into whites simply by lowering the temperature. In A Dance with Dragons, Tormund Giantsbane reveals to Jon Snow that his son Torwind was killed 
by the cold. He says, And Torwind, it was the cold, claimed him. Always sickly, that one. He just up and died one night. The worst of it, before we ever knew he'd died, he rose pale with them blue eyes. Had to see to him himself. And then he goes on. A man can fight the dead, but when their masters come, when the white mists rise up. How do you fight a mist, Crow? Shadows with teeth, air so cold it hurts to breathe, like a knife inside your chest. You do not know. You cannot know. Can your sword cut cold? So we can see how ruthlessly efficient the others can be. They can march around, freezing people to death, without even touching them, and the victims' bodies will then reanimate to serve them. Although they begin the story by roaming around lesser populated forests north of the Wall, we can imagine the scale of devastation if they were to invade a populous city like King's Landing. Altogether, the others' control of the temperature, combined with their advanced necromancy, is a lethal combination that will make them extremely difficult to defeat. Like their ice magic, this necromancy is another aspect to the others that George has included to make this race his own. Necromancy in literature is not something new, though. Homer's classic The Odyssey, written in the 7th century BC, contains passages related to necromantic rituals. And of course, resurrection has been a strong theme in religions and mythology for millennia. George's version of necromancy, where the undead are raised as an army of servants, might also be influenced by the various undead from The Lord of the Rings and the plethora of classic zombie movies that emerged as a horror subgenre, such as White Zombie and Night of the Living Dead. In George's story, the others are able to raise dead people and animals when they're in the vicinity of the corpses. These undead are called whites, and when their eyes turn bright blue, they are magically controlled by the others, perhaps in a similar way that skin changers inhabit animals. In fact, we do witness Bran Stark take over Hodor and Varamir Sixkins attempt the same trick on Thistle, so we know human skin changing is possible. Yet the others' techniques are advanced even for most skin changers. They seem to be able to control an unlimited amount of whites simultaneously while still being able to go about their own business. This creates the horrifying possibility that characters we love will someday become whites and be set against other characters we love, while the others stroll around inflicting their own damage simultaneously. Clearly, George has designed the others with potential for maximised chaos and destruction. Overall, we can recognize the influence of Irish mythology on the others and see how George has mixed in fantasy and horror tropes to create something both familiar and original. But given that the others have mainly been on the periphery of the story, there remain many questions about their powers, vulnerabilities, hierarchy, and motives. Today, we'll look at their history, analyze their impact on the current timeline, and consider their role in the future of the story. But given the constraints of the mystery, how much can we glean about this mysterious race? The most logical way to search for clues, we think, is to start at the beginning and go back thousands of years in history to analyse what we know about their origins. And so, up next, we'll focus on the Long Night, the first time the others invaded from the north and tried to bring Westeros to its knees. 
As the first men established their realms following the pact, little troubled them save their own feuds and wars, or so the histories tell us. It is also from these histories that we learn of the long night, when a season of winter came that lasted a generation, a generation in which children were born, grew into adulthood, and in many cases died without ever seeing the spring. Indeed, some of the old wives' tales say that they never even beheld the light of day, so complete was the winter that fell on the world. While this last may well be no more than fancy, the fact that some cataclysm took place many thousands of years ago seems certain. The near-apocalyptic event known as the Long Night occurred approximately six to 8,000 years before the main story during an era known as the Age of Heroes. Because the Andals had not yet arrived in Westeros, there were scant records kept in that era that survived to modern times. Aside from the odd collection of runes that were open to interpretation many years later, accounts from the Age of Heroes were instead carried forth in stories and songs, folklore passed on by word of mouth from generation to generation. While there are a fair selection of legends to endure the ages, there is a definite fogginess to these ancient histories that we must take into account. As George put it when talking about one Age of Heroes legend, Brandon the Builder, Much of those details are lost in the mist of time and legend. No one can even say for certain if Brandon the Builder ever lived. He is as remote from the time of the novels as Noah and Gilgamesh are from our own time. So, we need to keep in mind the limitations of historical information when we analyze events this far back. That said, this is a story and not the real world, so the information George has chosen to share with us is undoubtedly there for a reason. There are many mysteries related to ancient times within A Song of Ice and Fire, and so it follows that George would sprinkle a few clues within the legends that bear some truth and allow us to speculate on what might have transpired thousands of years ago. Altogether, if we piece together the stories and the songs and analyze what the maesters have said about this era in the world book, we can build up a decent picture of the long night and discuss the possibilities for the parts George has left intentionally blank. So, in the search for context, let's first briefly consider what was happening in Westeros thousands of years ago and might have been pertinent to the discussion about how and why the long night began. In the world book, there's a decent section written by Maester Yandel about the Dawn Age. He describes a primitive world where two intelligent species, the giants and the children of the forest, dominated the landmass now known as Westeros. The giants were large and nomadic, the children small and, quote, less barbarous than the giants. They sang songs and wove clothes and hunted with blades of obsidian. By all accounts, they had a deep connection with nature, and perhaps most interestingly of all, they mastered magic that allowed them to skin-change animals and see the past, present and future via their sacred weirwood trees. It seems the children were content in Westeros 
coexisting with the giants. And although there's evidence of conflict between the two species, such as a giant's body found in a barrow with obsidian arrows in the ribs, the overall picture we get is of two species living more or less in harmony with nature, with no large-scale wars or mass devastation. However, that was about to change. Eight to 12,000 years ago, a group of humans, now known as the First Men, that had been living in Essos, traversed the Arm of Dorne, which had not yet been shattered at this point, and began to settle in Westeros. As the First Men spread farther and farther across Westeros over generations, conflict with the Children of the Forest arose. We'll consider the children in depth in the next installment of this series, but for now we'll summarize the situation by saying that in order to raise forts and smooth the land to create farms, the first men began cutting down the sacred weirwoods. This led to vicious wars and perhaps overmatched in direct conflict. The children employed their magic to try and gain an advantage. When Catelyn Stark visits Moat Kaelin in the Neck in A Game of Thrones, she sees, quote, the tall, slender children's tower, where legend said the children of the forest had once called upon their nameless gods to send the hammer of the waters. So the children are rumoured to have called upon the magical hammer of the waters to flood the neck and smash the arm of dawn in an attempt to stave off the advances of the first men. If true, this drastic action shows two things – First, that the children had extreme magical powers, and second, that they were desperate enough to use them. In spite of these powers, though, the children knew they were in a losing battle against a race more technologically advanced who worked metal to produce protective armour and fought with bronze swords. After generations of fighting, both races had become war-weary and in a moment of mutual wisdom, they tried to bring about a peace. The children requested that no more weirwoods be cut down. The first men agreed, and both parties signed a pact on the Isle of Faces, ending the Dawn Age and advancing us into the Age of Heroes. This new age lasted for thousands of years and saw one legendary character after another arise, inspiring stories still told to this day. However, During the Age of Heroes, a cataclysmic event known as the Long Night devastated Westeros. As Yandor says in the World Book, it was a generation in which children were born, grew into adulthood, and in many cases died without ever seeing the spring. Indeed, some of the old wives' tales say that they never even beheld the light of day, so complete was the winter that fell on the world. And behind all of the chaos and terror of this apocalyptic generation was a species called the Others. The Maesters call the account of the Others hard to credit, yet we as readers know that the Others do exist. We've seen what they're capable of, and therefore we know the legends about them are likely to contain many truths. Before we get into those legends and consider what exactly happened during the Long Night, though, we should first continue our train of thought as to why it happened. Given the backstory about the wars with the children of the forest leading up to the pact, we should be highly suspicious of the role they might have played. As we've seen, the children had a bloody history with men. The first men had slaughtered them, driven them out of their homes, and cut down their weirwoods. 
with the children having been driven north, we then find it highly suspicious that the others apparently, quote, came from the frozen lands of always winter, which is also up north. What's more, the children are said to be in possession of great magic. If they could perpetrate something as drastic as flooding landmasses by raising the level of the sea, perhaps they had the capability to create the others. The only certain vulnerability we know the others have is dragonglass, which is also the weapon of choice of the children of the forest. Is this a coincidence or a pertinent clue? Well, there's also the fact that the others have a lot in common with humans. Archmaester Fomas writes in his tome, Lies of the Ancients, that the others were a tribe of first men that had established itself in the far north. Although Fomas insinuates the others were simply regular humans on a southern conquest, perhaps there's a nugget of truth in there, and there really was a tribe of first men living in the far north where some of the children had retreated. The notion that the others were magically transformed first men, perhaps corrupted skin changers, has been around the fandom for many years. Yeah, and that might have been reinforced by an interview George did in 2012 in Barcelona with the Spanish-language website and fan forum Ashai.com. When asked if there was a, quote, closer relationship between the children of the forest and the others than there might seem to be, his evasive response, indicating that there will be more to come on the subject, certainly pricked up a few ears. He said, possibly, possibly, is a topic that will be developing as the story continues, and so I can't say much more right now. Yeah, so a typical response from George there, urging us to keep reading when he doesn't want to give a direct answer. But, even with a plausible theory of who the first others were, we still require a motive as to why the children might have created them. While the conflict between the children and the first men has been well documented, they did agree to a pact, and so something must have happened to reignite tensions again to the extent that the children were willing to unleash a dark and dangerous magic onto the world. At this juncture, we would suggest one of two things. The first option is that the first men simply broke the pact, started chopping down weirwood trees, or offended the children in some other way, and the children didn't have the strength or numbers to retaliate, so they turned to dark magic instead. While this explanation makes some sense, there's no explicit evidence, or even subtle clues, that the first men went back on their word and started cutting down weirwoods again after the pact had been agreed. In fact, not only did the first men explicitly adopt the weirwoods and the old gods as part of their religion and culture, as we see even in the present story, Maester Lewin also tells Bran that, quote, the pact began 4,000 years of friendship between men and children. And so that brings us to the second possibility, and this is our own speculation, that the children were green-seeing into the future via the weirnet. As Yandel puts it, legend further holds that the Greenseers could also delve into the past and see far into the future. So if the Greenseers were viewing snippets of the future, they might have seen glimpses of the Andal invasion. The Andal invasion came centuries after the Long Night, and we get a brief account via Maester Lewin. 
The Andals burnt out the weirwood groves, hacked down the faces, slaughtered the children where they found them, and everywhere proclaimed the triumph of the seven over the old gods. So the children might have seen weirwoods being desecrated in the future, assumed it was the first men breaking the pact, and tried to launch a desperate preemptive attack or even defense by creating the others. It would be fitting to George's style that the others came about due to a misinterpretation of a prophecy or vision. That's a strong theme throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. Whatever the case, if the children really did create the others, we don't think they intended to cause the damage they did. It might have been more of a case of dark magic getting out of control. After all, Dalla of the Free Folk tells Jon Snow in A Storm of Swords that sorcery is a sword without a hilt. There is no safe way to grasp it. As we're going to see today, the children are said to have tried to aid the quest to defeat the others, and so we know for sure that they were against them during the long night. Could it be that they watched the devastation unfold and ultimately felt responsible? So. While it's difficult to draw concrete conclusions about the origin story of the others, we do at least offer some possibilities. Now it's time to switch from who the others are to what they did and examine the events of the Long Night. And what better place to begin than with the most extensive source about the Long Night, a terrifying story that George has hinted is mostly true. Here's Old Nan's tale from Bran 4 of A Game of Thrones. Oh, my sweet summer child, what do you know of fear? Fear is for the winter, my little lord, when the snows fall a hundred feet deep and the ice wind comes howling out of the north. Fear is for the long night when the sun hides its face for years at a time and little children are born and live and die all in darkness while the direwolves grow gaunt and hungry and the white walkers move through the woods. Thousands and thousands of years ago, a winter fell that was cold and hard and endless beyond all memory of man. There came a night that lasted a generation, and kings shivered and died in their castles even as the swineherds in their hovels. Women smothered their children rather than see them starve and cried and felt their tears freeze on their cheeks. In that darkness, the others came for the first time. They were cold things, dead things, that hated iron and fire and the touch of the sun and every creature with hot blood in its veins. They swept over holdfasts and cities and kingdoms, felled heroes and armies by the score, riding their pale dead horses and leading hosts of the slain. All the swords of men could not stay their advance, and even maidens and suckling babes found no pity in them. They hunted the maids through the frozen forests and fed their dead servants on the flesh of human children. Now these were the days before the Andals came, and long before the women fled across the narrow sea from the cities of the Broin, and the hundred kingdoms of those times were the kingdoms of the first men who had taken these lands from the children of the forest. Yet. Here and there, in the fastness of the woods, the children still lived in their wooden cities and hollow hills, and the faces in the trees kept watch. So, as cold and death filled the earth, the last hero determined to seek out the children 
in the hopes that their ancient magics could win back what the armies of men had lost. He set out into the Deadlands with a sword, a horse, a dog, and a dozen companions. For years he searched until he despaired of ever finding the children of the forest in their secret cities. One by one his friends died, and his horse, and finally even his dog, and his sword froze so hard the blade snapped when he tried to use it. And the others smelled the hot blood in him and came silent on his trail, stalking him with packs of pale white spiders big as hounds. Old Man's story is a classic part of A Game of Thrones. It relays intriguing information, adds to the history and world building, and demonstrates the importance of local folklore handed down from generation to generation. Considering the passage as a whole, the first notable aspect is that Old Nan calls the others White Walkers. Scanning through the entire text, we see that the term White Walkers is only used by Old Nan, Free Folk and members of the Night's Watch, meaning that it's an old northern name that probably goes way back. We also see where the Long Night gets its name. Old Nan mentions that it was a time when the sun hides its face for years at a time and little children are born and live and die all in darkness. A night that lasted a generation sounds terrible. Without the sun, crops couldn't grow, general coordination would be difficult, and there'd be no respite from the severe cold and oppressive gloom. Fans are left to speculate on whether there was a time of darkness that brought the others out of the far north and allowed them to flourish, or if the others can actually control the darkness themselves. Just like the question marks about whether the others come to the cold or bring it with them, the same discussion can be applied to the unnatural darkness described by Old Nan. As Samuel Tarley puts it in A Feast for Crows, they hide from the light of the sun and emerge by night, or else night falls when they emerge. Here we would argue that it's more likely that the others control the darkness. Melisandre Vashai repeatedly uses the darkness as a synonym for the others, and when we consider that the others were said to have been overcome by a flaming sword called Lightbringer, it seems to us that defeating the others equated to overcoming the darkness itself, bringing the light back to Westeros and beyond. In fact, Melisandre seems convinced that there will be another long night similar to the first. She says, when the long night falls, darkness and cold will cover the earth. Again, the darkness seems to be tied to the others inherently rather than incidentally. And with in-universe discussions about Azor High being reborn, George does seem to be hinting that history is about to repeat itself, and so we expect that there will be another period of darkness that the Night's Watch and their allies will have to rally against, in which case it seems likely that the others wield the magical power to turn off the lights. Certainly the fact that the Guardians of the Realm are called the Night's Watch indicates that there's a purposeful connection, rather than just an incidental one, between the Dark and the great enemy they're guarding against. Add to that, the Azor High prophecy states that there will be a time when darkness gathers, and so Melisandre's insistence that the others are lords of darkness might be quite literal. 
Old Nan describes the others as cold things, dead things, that hated iron and fire and the touch of the sun and every creature with hot blood in its veins. We know for sure that they're cold things, so she has that right. But when she says that they are dead things, she seems to be mistaken. As George told Tommy Patterson, the others are not dead. They're a different form of life. It's interesting to consider them through this lens. Earlier, we said that the others are pure evil, but that's from the perspective of a human who likes humans and animals and life and light. From the perspective of the others, life as we know it might seem unnatural to them, and so they feel compelled to snuff it all out, along with light and warmth. It's extremely difficult to try and take on their point of view, but they must have one, and Old Nan makes it clear that they hate warm life forms. Old Nan also says that the others hate iron and fire. In old mythology, as well as modern fantasy, Iron is often used to ward off supernatural creatures such as fairies. For example, in Tad Williams' Merry, Sorrow and Thorn series, an acknowledged influence of George's, iron is deadly to the fae-like Sithi. If we look at Will's prologue, when he slips his dirk between his teeth, it says the taste of cold iron in his mouth gave him comfort. Whether or not Iron does dismay the others, or if it's just a northern superstition remains to be seen, but they themselves didn't seem phased by Weimar Royce's steel. However, there might be a hint at the role Iron plays in the mythology of the others in the crypts below Winterfell. In Ned's first point of view chapter in A Game of Thrones, he's disquieted to see that some of the ancient iron swords in the tombs of his ancestors had rusted away to nothing. It says, By ancient custom, an iron longsword had been laid across the lap of each who had been Lord of Winterfell to keep the vengeful spirits in their crypts. What if the swords weren't keeping spirits in their tombs, but were originally a binding of sorts meant to keep the actual dead from walking? This would be similar to the confusion about how obsidian and fire affect the others versus how those things affect their undead slaves. Iron, having an adverse effect on whites, would certainly dismay the others, even if it didn't necessarily affect them directly. Yeah, for more on how iron might affect the dead, take the example of the dead men Jon Snow brings back from the Weirwood Grove beyond the wall in A Dance with Dragons. He consigns the corpses to the eye cells in the wall, hoping to replicate the conditions where the knights watchman Othor and Japha rose as whites in A Game of Thrones so that he could study them and gain insight into his enemy. Unfortunately, they never do rise, but we learn something about the conditions they're kept in in John's final POV chapter. It says they were bound with iron chains inside their cells. So all in all, some compelling hints that iron somehow works to bind the dead, to keep their vengeful spirits, as it were, from walking. And so, while George has commented that Old Nan's tales contain much truth, there might be confusion akin to a game of telephone in them. And there were almost certainly a number of embellishments in her tales. Her assertion that the others fed their dead servants on the flesh of human children could be true, although it's not clear that whites need to eat, and therefore Old Nan could just be trying to scare Bran. She mentions snowfall a hundred feet deep, which is rather a lot even for an unnatural winter. 
Finally, and perhaps most intriguing of all, she mentions the others hunting the last hero with packs of pale white ice spiders big as hounds. This is a line we could almost certainly attribute to Old Man's penchant for the dramatic, were it not for the fact that Samwell read the same thing in the Castle Black Library. He tells the Night's Watch Lord Commander Jon Snow that some accounts speak of giant ice spiders, too. I don't know what those are. Coming from two separate accounts, these ice spiders are harder to dismiss, and so the reader is left to speculate about what exactly they are, and if we will see the others employ them during a second long night. Given George has said that the others have a magical mastery over ice, do they have the ability to craft spiders from the substance, then control them with telekinetics? Or could there be literal ice spiders living in the uncharted extremes of the far north that the others can utilise? This is fantasy after all, a world with dragons and seasons bound by magic, and so nothing seems off the table. In fact, the world book goes a step further and suggests that the others actually rode these ice spiders like horses. Fans are both excited and terrified to see whether or not giant ice spiders really exist. Altogether, Old Nan's account of the long night, even taking into account the probable exaggerations, comes from the darkest and most horrific corner of George's imagination, given the reader has already seen the others in action, slicing Waymar apart with apparent ease before resurrecting him to murder Will, it raises the stakes of the greater story and communicates in no uncertain terms the magnitude of the danger Westeros will face before the end of this saga. And after outlining the freezing mayhem that the others unleashed all those many years ago, Old Nan begins to tell the story of how they were defeated. She mentions the last hero, who in northern legends at least, seems to be the figure who stepped forward to lead the resistance. He set off with a dozen companions, his horse, his dog, and a sword to find those who could aid him, the children of the forest. Unfortunately, after years of fruitless searching, the last hero's companions and animals died on their travels. His sword snapping from the cold might be a pertinent detail we'll discuss shortly, but for now note that it symbolises the fact that conventional weapons were not effective against the others, perhaps while we're told that all the swords of men could not stay their advance. So it looks like we need a magic sword, folks, and we all know how ubiquitous magic swords are to the types of fantasy stories and mythology George was inspired by. What might not have been clear from the reading is that just as Old Nan is beginning to tell the story of the last hero, Maester Lewin interrupts by knocking on the door to share the news of Tyrion Lannister's arrival to Winterfell. This is a great technique to obscure the ending and leave the reader thirsty for more details. George later obliges, somewhat, by letting us know a critical part of the story in the vaguest terms possible. While Yorin and his black brothers address Rob Stark about the missing Benjen Stark, Bran is still mentally immersed in Old Nan's tale. It says, All Bran could think of was Old Nan's story of the others and the last hero, hounded through the white woods by dead men and spiders big as hounds. He was afraid for a moment, until he remembered how that story ended. The children will help him, he blurted. The children of the forest. 
apart from offering a glimmer of hope for Benjamin Stark, knowing that the children of the forest aided the last hero to turn the tide of war is intriguing on several levels. Surely the first question on our lips should be, how exactly did the children of the forest help the last hero defeat the others? Given that the children did have some martial abilities, it's not out of the question that they might have physically joined the fight, but more likely, we think, is that the children used magic and conveyed knowledge that allowed humans to fight for themselves. When Bran continues to hound Maester Lewin for more information about the Children of the Forest, which both sets up his longer story and provides us with invaluable exposition, Lewin brings forth a jar of shiny black arrowheads and says, Obsidian, forged in the fire of the gods far below the earth. The children of the forest hunted with that thousands of years ago. The children worked no metal. In place of mail, they wore long shirts of woven leaves and bound their legs in bark, so they seemed to melt into the wood. In place of swords, they carried blades of obsidian. Much later, when Samwell researches Dragonglass at Castle Black, he learns that the children gifted the Night's Watch Dragonglass weapons during the Age of Heroes. As we've said, the fact that we witness Obsidian's lethal power against the others seems more than a mere coincidence. Given the curious detail that the last hero's sword had snapped, he was certainly searching for a weapon that would hurt the others. So reading between the lines, it does seem likely that the children knew of the magical powers of Dragonglass and might have helped the last hero by educating him about this unique vulnerability. To kill something, you need to know how to kill it, and so this simple knowledge would have been invaluable. At last, mankind could band together and kill their enemy with the frozen fire made of volcanic glass that proved to be anathema to the icy others. And with the notion that the last hero needed a hero's blade, it's then interesting that we hear of another legend centering around exactly that. The tale of Azor Ahai comes to our pages from the lips of well-travelled sailor Salador San when he educates Davos about the sword Lightbringer. The book confirms these stories come from the annals of Ashai, although in Essos, Azor Ahai is also known by other names such as Hirkun the Hero, Yintar, Nefarion, and Eldric Shadowchaser. In all accounts, during the long night, this hero and his fabled sword saved the race of men from the darkness. Some accounts around Yi-Ti blame the Long Night on an aggressive usurping called the Blood Betrayal, where the ruler of the Great Empire of the Dawn, the Amethyst Princess, was brutally slain by her younger brother, styling himself as the Bloodstone Emperor. As a result, the deity, the Maiden Maid of Light, quote, turned her back on the world, and the Lion of the Night came forth in all his wrath to punish the wickedness of men. And that darkness lasted until Azor Ahai, quote, arose to give courage to the race of men and lead the virtuous into battle with his blazing sword Lightbringer. And the darkness was put to rout and light and love returned once more to the world. And so with tales such as these emanating from the Far East, readers wonder if this was the same long night experienced in Westeros, or if there were separate incidents with different heroes, and it's a great question. 
with ancient history being as foggy as it is, anything is possible, and we wouldn't discount this point of view. However, it's also possible that all of the accounts we have of the Long Night are describing the same event and the same hero just through different cultural lenses that have become distorted over time. In short, the last hero and Azura High could be one and the same. So it's very interesting when in A Clash of Kings we get an account of Azura High making a hero's blade. Finally, we get more information about the last hero from Samwell who tells John in A Feast for Crows that I found one account of the Long Night that spoke of the last hero slaying others with a blade of dragon steel. Supposedly, they could not stand against it. So, if we splice these stories together, we get an account of the Long Night where a hero is searching desperately for a way to kill the others in order to lift the darkness. He finds the children of the forest and they inform him of the magical properties of Dragonglass. Then he forges a hero's blade called Lightbringer. Finally, he uses the blade to defeat the others who couldn't stand against it. Here we know for sure that the last hero went from having a broken sword and running away from the others to having a blade that defeated the others. So what are the chances that Dragonsteel and Lightbringer are different names for the same sword? Given that Azora High already has numerous different names, could the last hero be another? We think it's very interesting to consider the Old Nan's Tale and the Legend of Lightbringer, while ostensibly miles apart in origin, could in effect be different chapters of the same story. The Legend of Lightbringer begins by asserting that to lift the darkness of the Long Night, Azora High needed to invent a new type of blade, quote, like none that had ever been. The story focuses on the difficulty he had in making Lightbringer. The first attempt, tempered in water, was a failure. The second attempt, tempered with a lion's heart, failed again. Finally, in desperation, he enlisted his own wife, Nissa Nissa, as a willing sacrifice and thrust the blade through her heart. Her soul poured into the steel and Lightbringer was successfully forged and lighted the Red Sword of Heroes. Given our focus today is on the others, we'll leave off analysing the minutiae of this passage as a whole, but we will point out that it's interesting that the process Azora High uses to forge the blade, heat hammer and fold, essentially describes steel making. This might be pertinent in the discussion about whether Lightbringer and Dragon Steel are the same thing. Given that the others' Achilles heel was Dragonglass, and that the dragonglass is noted to be too brittle to form a sword out of, could it be possible Azora High was reinforcing dragonglass, perhaps with iron, to make a fantasy form of steel? It would certainly explain the dragon steel name, and could even be a proto-form of Valyrian steel. Remember that glass candles prove that dragonglass can be set alight and then burn indefinitely without fuel, which is exactly what Lightbringer appears to be doing. How else could a sword remain burning if it were not made from dragonglass? Certainly Lightbringer containing obsidian properties ticks two major boxes in that such a blade would be lethal to others and capable of burning on and on in the darkness. 
Given that whites are vulnerable to fire, this version of Lightbringer would be capable of defeating both the others and their legions of whites. It wouldn't snap against the others' cold blades either, and Dragonglass is noted by Jon Snow to be razor-sharp, and so altogether, it would be the perfect weapon to fight the others with. But even if Lightbringer or Dragonsteel proved to be the perfect weapon, it certainly took more than one man to defeat the others. In the north of Westeros, accounts of the defeat of the others are still carried in folklore and songs that describe the last hero's accomplices. At the Harvest Feast in Winterfell, in A Clash of Kings, it says, The music grew wilder, the drummers joined in, and Hotha Umber brought forth a huge curved warhorn banded in silver. When the singer reached the part in The Night That Ended, where the Night's Watch rode forth to meet the others in the battle for the dawn, he blew a blast that set all the dogs to barking. And Maester Yandel elaborates in the World Book about this northern legend. He says, Alone the last hero finally reached the children, despite the efforts of the White Walkers, and all the tales agree this was a turning point. Thanks to the children, the first men of the Night's Watch banded together and were able to fight and win the battle for the dawn, the last battle that broke the endless winter and sent the others fleeing to the icy north. And so if these accounts are true, the notion that the Night's Watch formed to guard the wall is a false one, given the wall was built after the Long Night. The Night's Watch seemed to have formed during the Long Night to aid the last hero, no doubt armed with fire and dragonglass weapons, that drove the others away. Given that it would be difficult to engage with the others in close combat, it seems likely the Night's Watch would have targeted their foe with dragonglass arrowheads like those Maester Lewin chose to Bran, or others Jon Snow's wolf ghost finds wrapped in a Night's Watch cloak near the Fist of the First Men. These aren't just clues to how the others were defeated 8,000 years ago, but how they might be defeated in the upcoming Long Night Round 2. As Lord Commander of the Watch, Jon Snow thinks how useful glass experts from Mere would be at the Wall if he could afford them. Ostensibly, Jon wants these experts to build glass gardens, but paired with the fact that Stannis Baratheon ordered the mass excavation of dragonglass on Dragonstone, we think this could be a meta-hint that we'll be seeing a lot of glasswork at the wall in the lead-up to the others arriving. And so the Night's Watch began as an organization that banded together in a time of absolute desperation to defeat an existential threat and are likely to be called upon again during the final novel to try and repeat history. The fact that the Night's Watch was once a proud and well-manned outfit but are depleted in the modern timeline serves the overriding theme that Westeros has forgotten about the Great Enemy and now is in a race against time to lift the cloud of ignorance and denial about them in order to prepare for a fresh onslaught. And who could say how pervasive the next long night will be? How far will the cold reach and who will be affected? Well, we can look at history to get some idea. As old Nan details, Westeros seems to have been covered in darkness and buried in snow. 
But in the World Book, there's an account from world traveller Lomas Longstrider about similar tales arising in Essos. It says, Lomas Longstrider, in his Wonders Made by Man, recounts meeting descendants of the Roinar in the ruins of the festival city of Croyan, who have tales of a darkness that made the Roin dwindle and disappear, her waters frozen as far south as the joining of the Siloru. According to these tales, the return of the sun came only when a hero convinced Mother Roin's many children, lesser gods such as the Crab King and the Old Man of the River, to put aside their bickering and join together to sing a secret song that brought back the day. So, unless there were multiple events occurring, it does seem as if the long night affected areas far from Westeros, and note that Saloru shares a latitude with Dorne, meaning that, assuming the night moved from north to south, most of Westeros indeed would have been covered as Old Nan suggested. But different places offer different reasons to explain the cold and darkness. The Far East have their own tales, and there's the massive five-fourth structures, perhaps built by the Empire of the Dawn, to defy the demons unleashed by the Lion of the Night, which sounds quite othery. Given there is evidence of children of the forest-like races in Essos called the Ifiquevron, it's possible that White Walkers were also unleashed in Essos at some point. However, as we said earlier, it could just be that the Westerosi Long Night affected the whole world, and that stories spread from one corner of civilization to the next, with each culture relating to the experience in their own ways. Whatever the case, and even through the mists of time, we can see the cataclysmic scale of devastation the others are capable of. In Westeros, northern inhabitants were so afraid that history would one day repeat itself that they erected a giant wall made of ice, gravel and magic to ward off their foe and guard the realms of men. And so, in the next segment, we'll consider what happened in history immediately after the others were defeated during the Long Night. But first, at the midway point of the episode, it's time for us to give thanks to our patrons from the Valyrian Steel level. Thanks so much to Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Akka and the Company of the Cats, Oxheart, Amber the Adamant, Anna, Arshia, Blythe Spirit, Archmaester Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Cabot the Unfrozen, David, Dean, James K, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, Miss Jody, JM, Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Juna of House Aiko, Casey, Kyle, Lady Silverwing, Infandaris, the Unspeakable Terror, Mark, Boss, Noble Sir Matthew, Sword of the Early Moon, The Sithorian, Sally, Tristis Lurian, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, Tim, W, Sword of the Evening, and Lady Dyerless of Castlenaki, the Alpha Patron. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. 
With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Night Fort has accrued many legends of its own, some of which have been recounted in Archmaester Harmune's Watchers on the Wall. The oldest of these tales concern the legendary Knight's King, the 13th Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, who was alleged to have bedded a sorceress pale as a corpse, and declared himself a king. For thirteen years the Night's King and his corpse queen ruled together, before King of Winter, Brandon the Breaker, brought them down. Thereafter, he obliterated the Night's King's very name from memory. While there remain many mysteries concerning the Long Night, one fact less ambiguous is that the others were eventually defeated in what's referred to by Northerners as the Battle for the Dawn. According to the World Book, thanks to the Children of the Forest, the first men of the Night's Watch banded together and were able to fight and win the Battle for the Dawn, the last battle that broke the endless winter and sent the others fleeing to the icy north. As we said, coupled with the snippets we get from Northern folklore, this seems to indicate that the Night's Watch were formed during the Long Night and not after, and that the organisation predates the wall they now guard. The Night's Watch, then, were likely a band of Long Night survivors who grouped together and aided the last hero in the attempt to defy and defeat the others. We might even speculate as to whether the last hero was the first Lord Commander of this force. But following the others' retreat, the Night's Watch continued to exist, eventually collecting themselves into a formal organization with rules, vows, and hierarchies. Despite the fact that they no longer had to contend directly with the others, when the Wall was erected, they found a renewed purpose in keeping watch at the border of Westeros to ensure the others didn't make inroads into civilization again. While the Night's Watch vows state that they are the, quote, watchers on the walls, plural, perhaps indicating that during the long night they were guarding a proto-Winterfell fort construction with multiple walls, now they were priming themselves to defend the wall, singular. Although exactly what was happening back then remains foggy, there are some interesting pieces of information presented in the text and auxiliary material that give us at least some idea. Samwell learns from texts at the Castle Black Library that the Children of the Forest continued to provide the Night's Watch with obsidian weapons during the Age of Heroes, so we can be fairly certain that the Children not only aided man's quest to defeat the others, but then continued to work with them after. And there's further evidence of this collaborative harmony between the two species in the building of the Wall. As Maester Yandel puts it, whether the legends are true or not, it is plain that the first men and the children of the forest, and even the giants, if we take the words of the singers, feared something enough that it drove them to begin raising the wall. 
If this is true, then it seems that the children helped construct the wall in order to keep the others out of Westeros. And the lead constructionist in charge of the audacious project of building what would become a 700-foot-tall wall of ice 300 miles long was the legendary northern figure Brandon the Builder. While a detailed look at Bran and the Wall is beyond the scope of this episode, it's certainly a good indication of how seriously the First Men and the Children of the Forest took the threat of the others returning that they would go to these drastic lengths to prevent history repeating itself. The modern maesters who pour scepticism on the ancient accounts of the others should consider what terror drove Bran the Builder to raise this wall in the first place. While the exact timing of the wall's construction is stated as vaguely as at the end of the long night, northern legends indicate by the time of the 13th Lord Commander, the wall was at least partially built along with the adjoining Night Fort, the first castle constructed to house the Night's Watch as they carried out their duties of patrolling and adding to the icy structure. And this Lord Commander is also highly relevant to our discussion of the others. When Bran Stark, Mira and Jojen Reed, and Hodor camp at the abandoned Night Fort, the group recounts several grisly, terrifying local legends, including the Rat Cook, the 79 Sentinels, and Maddox. These conversations put Bran in mind of the 13th Lord Commander, or as he's known in legend, the Night's King. Here's what Bran recalls of Old Man's accounts. He had been the thirteenth man to lead the Night's Watch, she said, a warrior who knew no fear. And that was the fault in him, she would add, for all men must know fear. A woman was his downfall. A woman glimpsed from atop the wall with skin as white as the moon and eyes like blue stars. Fearing nothing, he chased her and caught her and loved her, though her skin was cold as ice. And when he gave his seed to her, he gave his soul as well. He brought her back to the night fort and proclaimed her a queen and himself her king, and with strange sorceries he bound his sworn brothers to his will. For thirteen years they had ruled, the night's king and his corpse queen, till finally the Stark of Winterfell and Jorman of the Wildlings had joined to free the Watch from bondage. After his fall, when it was found he had been sacrificing to the others, all records of the night's king had been destroyed, his very name forbidden. Some say he was a Bolton, old man would always end. Some say a Magnard of Skagos. Some say Umber, Flint, or Nori. Some would have you think he was a Woodfoot from them who ruled Bear Island before the Iron Men came. He never was. He was a Stark, the brother of the man who brought him down. She always pinched Bran on the nose then. He would never forget it. He was a Stark of Winterfell, and who could say? Maybe his name was Brandon. Mayhaps he slept in this very bed, in this very room. No, Bran thought, but he walked in this castle where we'll sleep tonight. He didn't like that notion very much at all. Night's king was only a man by light of day, old man would always say, but the night was his to rule, and it's getting dark. So the Night's King is not the first Lord Commander, but the first one we have a decent account of. 
the fact that he's 13th commander added to the fact that he's stated to have ruled for 13 years should already instill a degree of trepidation in us given that's a number often associated with bad luck. At any rate, despite a concerted effort to erase the man from history, he's so infamous that he's still being discussed thousands of years later. What's clear in the description of the woman the Night's King becomes besotted with is that she's very otherly. Skin as white as the moon and eyes like blue stars does not sound ambiguous, and the notion that a man married an otherly woman raises many questions. For starters, this is the first otherly being clearly described as female. As we'll see, given that Craster seems to be handing over only his sons to the others, it's been theorized that the others are a small army of men and that the transformation of Craster's boys into others proves that they can't reproduce sexually, and more on that later. But the existence of the Night's Queen might challenge that belief and make us reconsider the true nature and societal structure of the others. After all, we've only seen a small number of them thus far, and altogether we know little of their culture. What if there are female others who are poised to come to the fore later in the story? What if the great other described by Melisandre is a female other? What if there are mother others? As it stands, we simply have no way of knowing, and there's a danger of building theories on top of layers of conjecture. However, while all of this certainly makes for interesting speculation that remains unprovable either way, there are alternative possibilities as to the nature of the Night's King's bride. Early in A Game of Thrones, Bran Stark recalls that Old Nan once told him that wildling women, quote, lay with the others in the long night to sire terrible half-human children. So is it possible the Night's Queen was one of these crossbreeds? There's also the line describing the Night's Queen as a corpse bride. This could be a creative way of saying that she was another, but given George has indicated that the others are not dead, a corpse queen would then be a misnomer. Unless she is not an other, nor a half-breed, but a good old-fashioned white. Would George really imply that a member of the Night's Watch had a love affair with the undead? Well, given the story of the original Reek, we wouldn't put anything past this author. Moving past the mystery of the Night's Queen's true nature, there is another interesting implication, that somehow the Night's King was able to harness the magic of the others and supernaturally subjugate his Night's Watch fellows. The text says, With strange sorceries he bound his sworn brothers to his will. And there's also mention of him sacrificing to the others. Clearly, the implication is that the Night's Queen had been teaching him the others' dark arts. But was she the one controlling the Night's Watch, or was it him? Was he himself enthralled, or did he actually master the same magic with which the others control their whites? And there are also questions that arise concerning the Night's King himself. Old Nan claiming he was a Stark might have been one of her scarebrander's fulliest possible embellishments, but it could also be the truth. In which case, the discussion about Stark lineage and their relationship to the others becomes very interesting. If the Night's King was a Stark and he and his otherly queen had offspring, it opens up the possibility that the Starks have a drop of others' blood in their veins. 
the story does indicate that they were sacrificing to the others, and if it was a similar sacrifice to the ones Crest was making, perhaps there is just a hint that the couple were reproducing, buried in the subtext. Maybe their female offspring survived, as Crasters do, to pass on their weird bloodline. While we're in wild speculation territory here, it would give more depth and meaning to this tale and explain why George included it in the first place. And magical bloodlines certainly seem to interest George, a typical fantasy world trope that he's played with elsewhere, with skin changers and green seers, for example. But it's difficult to say how accurate this tale is, and therefore speculation can only get you so far. What's certain is that the Night's King was ultimately considered such an abomination that all mentions of him were subsequently expunged from Night's Watch history, his name indeed censored from their records. His legacy, though, remains not only in folklore, but ingrained in the very fabric of the Night's Watch. To this day, the castle keeps of the Night's Watch have no southern-facing walls in order to keep them accessible to any southern forces. Altogether, what this legend illustrates is that while the wall presents a formidable physical and magical boundary for the others, they may still have ways of infiltrating the castles on the other side, as we witnessed up close when the whited Othor attempted to kill Lord Commander Mormont in A Game of Thrones. Who knows what might happen when the others arrive en masse at the wall with an army of the undead at their backs and perhaps accompanied by giant ice spiders able to scale the sheer face. Yeah, what a frightening thought. And another giant takeaway from this story is that generations after the long night, the others were still active to some degree. While they had been driven to the far north from whence they came with a new magical barrier to deter their southern ambitions, the existence of the blue-eyed woman may serve to prove that the others were not absolutely defeated. There was evidently some remnant of their faction remaining, and so it's interesting to consider what exactly they were up to following their defeat. Were they licking their wounds in the lands of always winter? Were they regrouping and preparing for another attack until the wall went up and put them off the idea? Were they probing the wall to test its strength, explaining why the blue-eyed woman was so close to the structure that the Lord Commander could see her from the top? It's interesting to consider how the others reacted to the defeat and why they have been more or less dormant for millennia. What's clear to the reader, though, is that they are finally preparing to strike south once more. Now, so much time has elapsed since the long night that the Night's Watch have forgotten their own history in raison d'etre. But even with their blurred sense of purpose and their diminished ranks, it's incredible that the Night's Watch has endured this long. They're slowly awakening to the formidable task ahead of them to once again band together and protect the realms of men against the others. While they might not be able to completely stay their advance this time around, we anticipate that they'll still have a massive role to play in the Battle for the Dawn Part 2. So, altogether, with the Night's Watch's continued existence following the defeat of the others during the Long Night, and Brandon the Builder's efforts in constructing the wall as well as Winterfell, what happened immediately after the long night provides a through line from past to present. The decisions made all those thousands of years ago are echoing into the current timeline. 
The first men trapped on the wrong side of the wall after the battle for the dawn remained there until the 998th Lord Commander of the Watch, Jon Snow, allowed many of them to come through to escape the others and their undead servants. But the free folk who fled after the battle beneath the wall and gathered at Hardhome now seem destined to join the ranks of whites, as we'll discuss in more detail later. And so, we've seen how many major plot threads in the current story are rooted in the ancient past, giving depth and verisimilitude to Westeros. As such, the post-Long Night period gave George a great foundation to his world-building. In the next segment, we'll walk through every reference to the Others and their whites in A Song of Ice and Fire, seeking to unravel and gain greater insight into their story. The other halted. Will saw its eyes, blue, deeper and bluer than any human eyes, a blue that burned like ice. They fixed on the longsword trembling on high, watched the moonlight running cold along the metal. For a heartbeat, he dared to hope. They emerged silently from the shadows, twins to the first, three of them, four, So far, we've given the others an overview, considered their influences and origins, and discussed what happened during and after the Long Night. Now it's time to consider their impact on the current timeline and put their appearances and mentions from A Game of Thrones through A Dance with Dragons under the microscope. And despite being left on the periphery for much of the story, there's still plenty of otherly action through the five novels that deserves close analysis to see what other evidence can be garnered about their nature, abilities and motives. Although we've briefly mentioned their earlier appearance in the A Game of Thrones prologue, there's still a lot more to say about their slaughter of Waymar Royce. So, let's start back. When George had the others ambush the three Night's Watchmen in the Haunted Forest to kick off his saga with aplomb, he wanted to show what they could do without overexposing them and diminishing their mystery. But with the benefit of hindsight, there's actually a decent amount to unpack about them in this chapter. Yeah, we've gone over the description of their weapons and their behavior briefly, but on closer inspection, there's a few more interesting catches. When the leading other steps up to face off against Sir Waymar Royce, our tree-climbing observer Will notices that the icy blade is sharper than any razor, as if it's not just sharp, but unnaturally sharp. This detail becomes more interesting further into the story, because we later learn that Valyrian steel is described with similar verbiage. When Arya Stark witnesses the beheading of her father with his own Valyrian steel blade, Ice, she notes that sunlight seemed to ripple and dance down the dark metal, glinting off an edge sharper than any razor. Given that we later get confirmation in a Daenerys chapter that dragon flame is required to forge Valyrian steel blades, we might begin to view these two types of fantasy swords as parallels, given one is forged with magical ice and the other with magical fire, These are more than just swords, they're the symbols of ice and fire that sit at the heart of this saga. Similar yet oppositional, we can wonder about these weapons coming into conflict at the climax of the story. As Lord Commander Jon Snow puts it to Samwell, so if I can just convince the Lords of the Seven Kingdoms to give us their Valyrian blades, all is saved? 
And so while this detail from A Feast for Crows might be an overt clue as to what direction the story is headed, the first subtle breadcrumbs were laid out in the description of the other's blades in the opening prologue. When Will observes three, four, five more others stepping out of the forest to watch the conflict with Waymar, it says, They emerge silently from the shadows, twins to the first. The big clue about the other's nature here is the notion that they're called twins. While at first read-through, we might interpret this to mean that the others simply look alike, we later learn from Craster's wives that not only does he leave their sons as offerings to the others, but that the wives believe their sons actually become others. When a crying gilly begs Samwell to take her baby in a storm of swords, she says, He's a boy, just like Nella said he'd be. If you don't take him, they will. They, said Sam, and the raven cocked its black head and echoed, They, they, they! The boy's brothers, said the old woman on the left, Craster's sons. The white cold's rising out there, Crow. I can feel it in my bones. These poor old bones don't lie. They'll be here soon, the sons. So, midway into the third book, we learn why George described the others as looking like twins to the first in the prologue. They are all essentially brothers, with the same father and mothers who are sisters to each other. While we're not about to unravel their horrifically incestuous and complex family tree, let's just say the others seem to be very closely related. And although their social structure and group dynamics hasn't yet been fully disclosed by George, surely we'll get further details on this subject, and once again, the clues might be found in the original prologue. We mentioned that five or more others emerge from the shadows to watch the first other square off against Waymar, and an intriguing detail here is that they are watching and not participating in the conflict. This is not the free-for-all slaughter we might expect, but an old-fashioned duel with an unspoken code of conduct that the others are adhering to. In some regards, they're behaving more like knights than monsters. It seems this terrifying species has a sense of honour, which not only hints at their human origins, but also highlights the fact that they maintain human standards from a certain angle, despite their unconscionable antics of, you know, mass-murdering innocent people and enslaving their dead corpses. Again, George is mixing the human with the inhuman to great effect. These are not mindless monsters, but an intelligent species with mysterious hidden depths. It's only when Waymar is defeated that the first other signals to his companions to join in the butchery and finish the job. It almost seems like a vanity exercise for the other to show off his skills to his peers. George describes Waymar's best attack as being met with a parry that he says is, quote, almost lazy. On a meta level, we're being shown that the others are more than capable of overmatching their human foe. Finally, when the work is done, the others leave the scene and Will eventually comes down from the safety of the sentinel tree, only to be killed by the resurrected Waymar in a shocking end twist. As a white, Waymar has cold skin and blue otherly eyes that inform us that he's under their control. In just a few pages, George has conveyed everything he needed to about his chief fantasy antagonists. 
No matter how lost in the political drama and character tragedies we become, this grave existential danger is always lurking in the background of our minds thanks to this short horror story. And so the main story begins with a brand chapter in which the only survivor of the confrontation with the others, Garrett, is beheaded by Ned Stark for the crime of desertion. Ned says, The poor man was half mad. Something had put a fear in him so deep that my words could not reach him. And so Ned's failure to understand the implications of Garrett's experience sets the theme of humanity ignoring an existential threat because it appears to be beyond their comprehension. However, it's not long before the others leave an indelible mark that's impossible to ignore, for the men of the Night's Watch at least. When Jon Snow heads to the Weirwood Grove north of the Wall to say his vows, his direwolf ghost brings him a severed hand. The hand belongs to Jafer Flowers, who was sent north on a ranging expedition with Jon's uncle Benjen Stark. Jafer's body is found with that of another Night's Watchman, the cunningly named Othor. At the beginning of John 7 of A Game of Thrones, we get this passage. Othor, announced Sir Jeremy Riker, beyond a doubt. And this one was Jafer Flowers. He turned the corpse over with his foot, and the dead white face stared up at the overcast sky with blue, blue eyes. And soon after, Othor's eyes are described as blue as sapphires. Even the vaguely attentive reader knows what the emphasis on blue eyes implies, and before long, the studious Samuel Tarley picks up on some curious aspects to the corpses. Here's the passage. They, they aren't rotting, Sam pointed, his fat finger shaking only a little. Look, there's, there's no maggots or worms or anything. They've been lying here in the woods, but they, they haven't been chewed or eaten by animals. Only ghosts. Otherwise, they're... they're Untouched, John said softly, and ghost is different. The dogs and horses won't go near them. After the dogs refuse to go near the corpses, Sam continues his investigation, highlighting the fact that there's no blood on the ground, which proves the bodies must have been moved. Dywin chips in with his observation that neither of the dead men were formerly in possession of blue eyes, and then members of the Watch urge Mormont to burn the corpses. We later learn that burning corpses is not only the best way to dispose of bodies to prevent them becoming whites in the first place, but also the way to defeat whites, so there are evidently remnants of ancient knowledge lingering in the collective Night's Watch unconscious. However, Instead of burning the corpses, Mormont makes the fateful decision to bring them back to Castle Black to be studied by Maester Aemon. While Othar and Jafer are placed in an icy storeroom by the base of the wall, the focus on the strange corpses is lost when news of King Robert's death and Ned Stark's subsequent imprisonment spreads around Castle Black, which works as a fine example of kingdom politics distracting humanity from the impending supernatural threat. And then, in a microcosm of what is to come, during the night, the blue-eyed corpses rise. Othor seeks out Lord Commander Mormont, but Jon Snow intervenes and essentially kills him with fire from a lamp. Meanwhile, Jafer attacks the unfortunate Sir Jeremy Riker, and despite the knight's best efforts succeeding in beheading the corpse, the white slays Riker when, quote, the headless corpse pulled his own dagger from its sheath and buried it in his bowels. 
Jafer slays four other men before being hacked to pieces. So we learn a lot about whites in this chapter. We see firsthand that burning them is the way to go. We also learn that whites can be brought through the wall and still be controlled by the others who remain somewhere up north. Their magic necromancy then penetrates the wall and its magic. Remembering that the two men were already blue-eyed and whited before they were brought through the wall, the only question remaining is if the others can actually raise whites of dead bodies south of the wall, which is precisely what Jon Snow is trying to ascertain with his experiment of placing two chained-up dead wildling bodies in an ice cell during a dance with dragons. The case of Othor and Jafer was more of a white infiltration. And this infiltration is interesting when evaluating the strategy of the others. Did they really move those bodies so that the Night's Watch would find them and bring them through the wall and leave the Lord Commander vulnerable? It's quite an incredible plan, displaying a high level of cunning and foresight. Perhaps Othor's targeting of the Lord Commander's chambers proves something else, too, that the others can use the White's minds to their advantage. Undead Othor clearly knew where he was going and what he was doing— So, were his icy masters able to explore and harness memories from his life? One thing's for certain, much like greenseers seeing through the eyes of the weirwood trees, the others may very well have seen through Othor and Chafer's eyes and may therefore have Castle Black mapped out pretty well. At the very least, this was likely a successful scouting exercise for them, so we wonder to what extent they might have registered that the Night's Watch is currently undersupported and quite vulnerable. As a result of this white attack, Sir Alistair Thorne is sent to King's Landing with Jafer's reanimated hand. But so much time and distance has elapsed when he finally meets Tyrion Lannister, then acting as Hand of the King in the capital, that the corpse's hand has rotted. The Night's Watch in the far north are going to have a really hard time convincing Southerners that the Others and Whites really exist, evidenced by the fact that Tyrion, who has even been to the Wall, mocks Alistair. He says with his usual nonchalant wit, if you bury your dead, they won't come walking. And then the court laughs together. Meanwhile, the Night's Watch are heading north on a great ranging. They arrive at Craster's Keep to rest on their journey. Craster's a wildling, but given he's a bastard son of a Night's Watchman, he's one of the few wildlings ready to cooperate with the men in black. And when his pregnant daughter-wife Gilly whispers to Jon Snow that she's afraid of what will happen when her baby is born, we get this key exchange. If it's a girl, that's not so bad. She'll grow a few years and he'll marry her. But Nella says it's to be a boy and she's had six and knows these things. He gives the boys to the gods. Come the white cold, he does, and of late it comes more often. That's why he started giving them sheep, even though he has a taste for mutton. Only now the sheep's gone too. Next it will be dogs till... She lowered her eyes and stroked her belly. What gods? John was remembering that they'd seen no boys in Craster's keep, nor men either, save Craster himself. The cold gods, she said. The ones in the night. The white shadows. What color are their eyes? He asked her. Blue, as bright as blue stars, and as cold. It's interesting that Craster, a man living lawlessly and adhering to no culture in particular, views the others as cold gods. This is the only time in the text where that phrase is used. 
Craster can be seen as a survivalist, doing just whatever it takes to survive, taking a nice new shiny axe from the Night's Watch here, offering the others a baby there. Presumably, the idea is that the others leave him in peace if he gives up his sons. We're left to wonder how the others initiated this arrangement given they speak an unintelligible language and how long this act of tribute has been offered by Craster. On Sam's return journey, we learn that the others are perhaps transforming the sons into new others, as we said earlier, giving rise to theories that the others in the current timeline are unable to reproduce sexually. But will we ever know just how many sons have been taken? If we knew this, could we ascertain how many others there are? Gilly says in a passage that her sister Nella alone has had six sons. Given there are six others in the opening prologue, and remembering that they were described as twins, it's feasible that they were all Nella's sons. Perhaps somewhere in the future of the story, when Samwell is researching the others, Gilly might hazard a guess as to how many boys were sacrificed in total, and we'll have a ballpark figure of the size of their ranks. The fact that the others seem to be satisfied with gifts of sheep and dogs when there are no baby boys is curious. What use they have for animals they cannot ride is unclear. Do we really think the others have a taste for mutton, if they even eat at all? Do they use the warm blood ritualistically? Feed the undead with their flesh? Given it's unlikely the others will be attacking the wall with a flock of blue-eyed sheep, your guess is as good as ours here. Finally, there's the issue of proximity. Looking at the map, Craster's Keep lies between White Tree and the Fist of the First Men in the Haunted Forest. So, do the others' visits, noted to have become more frequent of late, in any way relate to their position in the opening prologue? Were the White Walkers that butchered Waymar Royce in the Haunted Forest some 18 to 24 months before John arrived at Craster's actually headed there to pick up a baby when they stumbled upon a member of their black-clothed adversaries? Altogether, this brief passage from Gilly is chock-full of revelations about the others, and we might wonder how much of the upcoming apocalyptic invasion is owed to Craster's willingness to tributize his own sons to the Cold Gods. Perhaps being someone who wanted to rule with totality over his clan of daughter-wives, he was happy to see the backs of any potential male rivals to the incestuous setup. The price Westeros might pay for this arrangement might be difficult to overstate. Knowingly or unknowingly, Craster might have replenished the others' ranks for the first time in 8,000 years and literally handed them an army. While he's dubbed by Lord Commander Mormont as a friend to the Watch, Craster's pathologically selfish brand of survivalism might ultimately make him even more of a monster than he already appears to have been. And when the Night's Watchmen move on from the shelter of Craster's Keep to the open, icy foothills of the Fist of the First Men, George gives us a glimpse of the incredible power of the Other's army. During the prologue of A Storm of Swords, we follow Chet's gang's attempt to murder their Night's Watch fellows and desert the Great Ranging altogether. Chet's plot was initially foiled by falling snow that would have made absconding impossible due to the tracks his gang would leave behind. But just as he's about to kill Samuel Tarley anyway out of sheer spite, things go from bad to worse for the leechman's son. The Night's Watch horn sounds not once, not twice, but three times. 
Here's the passage. Three, Sam squeaked to Chet. That was three. I heard three. They never blow three, not for hundreds and thousands of years. Three means others. Chet made a sound that was half a laugh and half a sob, and suddenly his small clothes were wet and he could feel the piss running down his legs, see steam rising off the front of his breeches. And that's how the prologue ends. The others have arrived, and this time, they've brought their undead friends. But, in true cliffhanger style, it's not until a whopping 18 chapters later that any exposition is given to the Battle on the Fist, and even then it's in the form of Samwell's memories. As he flees from the scene, sobbing and taking one step at a time, Sam recalls the moment the ranks of archers loosed arrows at the hundreds of figures approaching the fist. At first they cheered as if victory had been scored, but they soon realised that their foes, being already dead, were undeterred by death falling from the sky. While Lord Commander Mormont's order to serve the White's fire gave the Watch a fighting chance, the optimism didn't last long. In charge of writing and sending notes of distress back to the wall via ravens, Sam pauses to write out his messages. It says, White's all around us, he wrote when he heard the shouts from the North Face, coming up from the North and South at once. Spears and swords don't stop them, only fire. Loose, 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 a voice screamed in the night. And another shouted, bloody huge. And a third voice said, a giant. And a fourth insisted, a bear, a bear. The Watch soon found themselves surrounded on the fist, trying to cut themselves out of the waves of swarming whites. While Sam was lucky to escape, many of his fellows weren't, so we can see how the others are able to sweep over an area, kill their opposition, and swell their ranks with men, giants, and animals. And then, while retreating, the beleaguered Samwell faced yet more horror when he began to lag behind with Small Paul and Gren. Here's the moment Sam realized that they were being pursued. They weren't alone at all. The lower branches of the great green sentinel shed their burden of snow with a soft, wet plop. Gren spun, thrusting out his torch. Who goes there? A horse's head emerged from the darkness. Sam felt a moment's relief until he saw the horse. Hoarfrost covered it like a sheen of frozen sweat and a nest of stiff black entrails dragged from its open belly. On its back was a rider, pale as ice. Sam made a whimpery sound deep in his throat. He was so scared he might have pissed himself all over again, but the cold was in him, a cold so savage that his bladder felt frozen solid. The other slid gracefully from the saddle to stand upon the snow. Sword slim it was, and milky white. Its armor rippled and shifted as it moved, and its feet did not break the crust of the new-fallen snow. This is our closest look at an other since the opening prologue, and notice that not only does it ride an undead horse, but that it slides gracefully to the ground, an example of the elegance George is attempting to convey. Fitting to the name White Walkers, the other walks on the snow without damaging the crust, so we see how difficult they are to see and hear, perfectly attuned to snowy environments. At this point, Sam is ready to become a white, but Gren tries to dismay the other with his torch. 
the other cuts the head off the flame, snuffing it out without much trouble. We can infer from this that while flames kill whites, fire doesn't have the same effect on others. So what is their Achilles heel? Small Paul, while being one of the largest men Sam had ever seen, has a soft, animal-loving, Lenny from Of Mice and Men heart, and he takes offense to the other having killed Monty's horse. But when he charges with his steel axe, the other impales Paul on his icy sword with ease. Fortunately, though, Paul's death isn't entirely in vain as his massive weight pulls the other's sword from his cold hands and leaves him temporarily disarmed. Sam watches on in horror. His nervous hands search for the metal dagger in his cloak, but he unknowingly pulls out one of the dragonglass daggers Jon Snow's wolf ghost had found wrapped up in a Night's Watch cloak by the fist of the First Man. With his eyes closed, Sam musters up the courage to stab the blade outwards towards the other. While not wanting to take anything away from Sam finding the courage when he was so afraid, he does get rather lucky here. As he stabs the dagger wildly with eyes closed, he hears the crack of ice and a sharp screech. It says, When he opened his eyes, the other's armour was running down its legs in rivulets as pale blue blood hissed and steamed around the black dragonglass dagger in its throat. It reached down with two bone-white hands to pull out the knife, but where its fingers touched the obsidian, they smoked. Sam rolled onto his side, eyes wide, as the other shrank and puddled, dissolving away. In twenty heartbeats, its flesh was gone, swirling away in a fine white mist. Beneath were bones like milk glass, pale and shiny, and they were melting too. Finally, only the dragonglass dagger remained, wreathed in steam as if it were alive and sweating. This scene outlines the other's vulnerability to dragonglass. Given we already know whites can be burned, we now understand how mankind might defeat the others. As far as we know, this is the first other to be killed since the Long Night Era 8,000 years ago. And the other slayer was none other than the self-confessed coward Samuel Tarley. While there was luck involved and Sam will one day be mocked and ironically nicknamed Sam the Slayer, he could have just as easily succumbed to the intense fear he was feeling and resigned himself to becoming a white. But he did what needed to be done, and given that Sam is ultimately able to convey this crucial vulnerability to Stannis Baratheon, who then orders the mass mining of dragonglass or obsidian from Dragonstone, Sam has not only killed another, but given mankind hope of winning the upcoming war. And it's difficult to say for sure, but given what we've discussed about the others potentially being Craster's sons, technically speaking, he might just have killed one of Gilly's brother-uncle cousins, all rolled into one. Not content with slaying a white walker, Sam later doubles down and kills a white too. After returning to Craster's keep, he witnesses the Night's Watch mutiny that sees Dirk slit Craster's throat and Olo Lophand kill Jor Mormont. Sam flees south with Gilly and her baby to a small house in a village which may or may not have been White Tree. When a very large white, Small Paul himself, attacks Sam, he attempts to kill him as he had done with the other with his dragonglass dagger. 
after brandishing the blade at the white and noticing that it didn't seem to be causing any fear, he bravely lashed out at the creature who had once been his Night's Watch brother. Here's the passage. You're dead, Sam screamed as he stabbed. You're dead, you're dead. He stabbed and screamed again and again, tearing huge rents in Paul's heavy black cloak. Shards of dragonglass flew everywhere as the blade shattered on the iron mail beneath the wall. The dragonglass had no effect on the white, and we can see this as part of a process of setting the rules for dealing with this threat. Dragonglass for the masters, and fire, as Lord Commander Mormont had ordered at the fist, for the servants. Sure enough, Sam managed to grab a smoldering log from the fireplace and force it down the white's throat. Sam has now killed an other and the largest white this side of an undead giant. But the house is surrounded by a crowd of other whites. Some wildlings, some night's watchmen such as Lark the Sisterman, Softfoot, Riles, and Chet. All seems lost for a moment and Sam is devastated that he won't be able to defend Gilly and her baby. Keep in mind that Sam was also in possession of an old warhorn that John had found along with the dragonglass cache, and that it could be either that or the baby or both, that the others were after. However, a flock of ravens descends on the whites, and a mysterious black brother riding on an elk rescues the trio. The elk rider is later dubbed Cold Hands due to his, well, cold hands, and seems himself to be some sort of undead creature, although he has black eyes instead of blue, and appears not to be under the spell of the White Walkers, Instead, he seems to be working for or controlled by Brindam Rivers, a.k.a. Blood Raven, who is probably watching the scene and controlling the ravens from the safety of his cave somewhere north of the wall. As intriguing as all of this is, is perhaps beyond the scope of today's episode and more fitting to our upcoming look at Greenseers. But for now, it should be noted that here we have a white doing the bidding of a greenseer who opposes the others and their agenda. The plot thickens indeed. When Coldhands arrives at the wall, he can't pass the black gate. Presumably the magic of the wall prevents it. The readers left to consider why Other and Jafer Flowers could pass the wall when they had already been whited. After dropping off Sam, Gilly, and the baby at the night fort, Coldhands then takes Bran Stark and his companions north to a cave where Bloodraven reveals himself to be the Three-Eyed Crow. With Sam now safe at the wall, he relays the details of his experiences not only to his fellows, but to Stannis Baratheon and Melisandre of Ashai, who have made the decision to come to the wall and oppose the others alongside the Night's Watch. And when Jon Snow is elected as the Lord Commander, Sam is tasked with researching the icy foe to learn as much about them as possible. The following exchange between Sam and Jon in A Dance with Dragons is packed full of relevant information, so here it is in its entirety. I found mention of Dragonglass. The Children of the Forest used to give the Night's Watch a hundred obsidian daggers every year during the Age of Heroes. The others come when it's cold, most of the tales agree. Or else it gets cold when they come. Sometimes they appear during snowstorms and melt away when the skies clear. They hide from the light of the sun and emerge by night. 
or else night falls when they emerge. Some stories speak of them riding the corpses of dead animals, bears, direwolves, mammoths, horses, aches no matter, so long as the beast is dead. The one that killed Small Paul was riding a dead horse, so that part's plainly true. Some accounts speak of giant ice spiders, too. I don't know what those are. Men who fall in battle against the others must be burned, or else the dead will rise again as their thralls. We knew all this. The question is, how do we fight them? The armor of the others is proof against most ordinary blades, if the tales can be believed, said Sam, and their own swords are so cold they shatter steel. Fire will dismay them, though, and they are vulnerable to obsidian. He remembered the one he had faced in the haunted forest and how it had seemed to melt away when he stabbed it with the dragonglass dagger John had made for him. I found one account of the long night that spoke of the last hero slaying others with a blade of dragon steel. Supposedly, they could not stand against it. Dragon steel? John frowned. Valyrian steel? Well, that was my first thought as well. So if I can just convince the lords of the Seven Kingdoms to give us their Valyrian blades, all is saved? That won't be hard. His laugh had no mirth in it. Did you find who the others are, where they come from, what they want? Not yet, my lord, but it may be that I've just been reading the wrong books. There are hundreds I've not looked at yet. Give me more time and I'll find whatever there is to be found. Given the last hero's dragon steel blade was apparently forged thousands of years before Valyria, it's interesting that John equates dragon steel to Valyrian steel. This presents an anachronistic conundrum. The answer could be that dragon steel was a sort of proto Valyrian steel but maybe not quite the exact same substance. But the main takeaway here is that George is indirectly hinting at the possibility that Valyrian steel kills others. We mentioned that this would create another great parallel between others and dragons, and from a story perspective, given John's offhand comment about the blades of the Lords of the Seven Kingdoms, it could be a hint that some of our heroic characters will square off against the others in combat, which would make for some tense and action-packed scenes. However, while all of this makes sense to the story, we'll need to wait until someone cuts another with Valyrian steel to know for sure that it's lethal to them. All of this information Sam unearths is no doubt useful to Lord Commander Snow and Stannis Baratheon. Later on in A Dance with Dragons, they let many of the defeated wildlings through the wall to prevent the others from killing them and increasing their white army considerably. However, there are still thousands of vulnerable wildlings who fled the battle, which is partially documented by Varamir in his A Dance with Dragons prologue, led by the soothsayer Mother Mole, who experienced a vision of the wildlings being carried away to safety across the narrow sea. These wildling refugees gather at Hardhome on the eastern shore. Unfortunately, not only do the savior ships in Mother Mole's vision turn out to be associate slavers, but the others also seem to have arrived. Having sent a Night's Watch fleet north to rescue the wildlings, Jon Snow receives a letter from Cotter Pike that gives us a glimpse of the pure terror unfolding at Hardhome. His letter reads, At Hardhome with six ships, wild seas, blackbird lost with all hands, two Lysini ships driven aground on Skein, Talon taking water, very bad here, wildlings eating their own dead, 
dead things in the woods. Bravosi captains will only take women, children on their ships. Which women call us slavers? Attempt to take Stormcrow defeated, six crew dead, many wildlings. Eight ravens left, dead things in the water. Send help by land, seas racked by storms. From Talon, by hand of Maester Harmune. No reader is likely to forget the lines, dead things in the woods, dead things in the water. And so it seems misinterpreted prophecy has led the wildlings to a scene of cannibalism, enslavement, and zombification. And we might have had an advanced glimpse of this situation via Melisandre's flames. In her one and only point of view chapter, we get this moment of prophecy. Snowflakes swirled from a dark sky and ashes rose to meet them, the gray and the white swirling around each other as flaming arrows arced above a wooden wall and dead things shambled silent through the cold beneath a great gray cliff where fires burned inside a hundred caves. Then the wind rose and the white mist came sweeping in, impossibly cold, and one by one the fires went out. Afterward, only the skulls remained. Given that Jon Snow recalls an old tale of a previous disaster at Hardholm, mentioning its great cliff, we can probably conclude that Melisandre was seeing the others sweeping over the area and swelling their army by a few thousand more wildling whites. And just as Jon coordinates a rescue response to the situation at Hardholm, he's stabbed by his Night's Watch fellows. We await the winds of winter to see how the chaotic situation at Castle Black and Hardhome develop, but it does seem that the only ones to benefit from the mayhem will be the others. Altogether, while the others have largely been kept out of sight thus far, and are in fact only seen twice on page, George drip feeds enough information to not only inform us about them, but to keep us interested. Since the first prologue, we as readers have yearned to know more, and part of the reason we're all so addicted to this story is that the author has maintained that sense of mystery. Without an other's point of view, he's had to be smart about controlling what we know, and has utilized folklore, songs, ancient texts, prophecy, and snippets of secondhand information to convey the relevant details. We await the day that the others venture further south, in view of our host of point of views, to get a closer look. And what happens then will be the subject of our next segment. How many boys dwell in Westeros? How many girls? How many men? How many women? The darkness will devour them all, she says. The night that never ends. In this episode, we've attempted to analyze everything we know about the others, but as much as we're able to glean about their appearance, their vulnerabilities and origins, there's still so much we simply don't know about them. Good mystery writers give their readers gradual clues, but throw out more questions than answers, and this is exactly what George has done with the others. Yeah, five books in, and we understand so little about their existence. While we've considered the evidence that they are intelligent and human-like enough to have a social structure, we have no idea for sure what that looks like. 
given that Melisandre mentions a great other, an enemy of R'hllor whose name must never be spoken, we have to consider if she's referring to a deity or if the great other is their leader. Yeah, if we accept that the others have some degree of culture, shouldn't we expect them to have a hierarchy? And if they do, what does that hierarchy look like? It might be that some of the others were around 8,000 years ago to taste defeat at the hands of the last hero, the Night's Watch and the Children of the Forest. So do these ancient others outrank Craster's sons? Surely Craster's boys would be the new kids on the block, still learning the ropes, as it were. And recalling what we said at the beginning of the episode about George's mention of the mysterious Neverborn in the 1993 letter to his editor. Are the Neverborn those others who have been turned from human babies? And are they distinct from the original others who might have been transformed by the children of the forest magic? Or are they something altogether different that may or may not ever be introduced? While there is no explicit proof in the text that the others have a leader, we can't ignore the possibility that George is holding back intriguing details about them in order to spring twists and reveals on us later into the story. So let's consider what we know about the Great Other. Melisandre worships the Lord of Light, and the Lord's dualistic, oppositional counterpart in the religion of R'hllor is the Great Other. According to Melisandre, if the Great Other destroys the wall and overcomes the resistance of mankind, he will usher in an era she calls the Long Night That Never Ends. In her Soul Point of View chapter, she thinks, The dark recedes again, for a little while, but beyond the wall the enemy grows stronger, and should he win, the dawn will never come again. She wondered if it had been his face that she had seen, staring out at her from the flames. No, surely not. His visage would be more frightening than that, cold and black and too terrible for any man to gaze upon and live. And in the same chapter, she thinks, sleep is a little death, dreams, the whisperings of the other who would drag us all into his eternal night. So Melisandre, who no doubt studied the long night in a shy, clearly believes that the great other's goal is to make Westeros and perhaps the entire world a perpetually dark, wintry hellscape devoid of life as we know it. And from a storytelling point of view, having a single other who is the chief enemy makes yet more sense. Rather than facing off against every single other, our heroes might just need to take down the head of the clan. This would give the drama in A Dream of Spring a tight focus and allow for a spectacular, action-packed Battle for the Dawn finale where one of our heroes faces the great other in a maximum-stake sword fight on which the entire fate of Westeros hinges. Without a chief other, George might struggle to distill the climactic action into a single, focused, edge-of-your-seat scene. And if there is a leader of the Others, we might learn more of the Others' backstory. One of the key questions in this hypothetical is whether the Great Other would in fact be the very first to have ever been created. Could this Chief Other in the current timeline be the same one behind the chaos of 8,000 years ago? Did he retreat north to the lands of Always Winter, licking his wounds after the defeat at the hands of a human hero in the last long night? Yeah, and it's also very interesting to consider what might be lying up there in the lands of always winter. 
We assume this is where the others call home. So what does that look like? Do they just sit around in the snow or is there some sort of community? All we know is that they retreated that way thousands of years ago and that now they're back and making their way south. So what were they up to during the interim? Were they hibernating, waiting for the right time to rise again? If so, why did they choose to return at this particular time? Is there a logic to the timing of their reemergence? Do the others have prophecies importance, parallels to the Azura High Reborn prophecy? And are their prophecies linked to any of the characters in story, or even the magical rebirth of dragons? We should keep in mind that Westeros has irregular seasons. When quizzed about the issue of seasons, George said, I'm going to explain it all eventually, but it's going to be a fantasy explanation. It's not going to be a science fiction explanation. So this indicates that the answer will be magical rather than scientific, and so it seems a fair bet that the explanation will relate to the others and dragons, proving just how integral both are to George's world. Keep in mind that the rebirth of dragons seem to catalyze the strength of spells in the production of wildfire. With so many variables surrounding the others, and given the limitations of George's strict POV structure, we wonder not just what the answers to all of our questions will be, but where they will come from. So why don't we consider the options? Perhaps our primary source for information about the others going forward will be Bran Stark's point of view. He's currently holed up in a cave north of the Wall with former Night's Watchman Brendan Rivers. Brendan is tangled up in a weirwood and has learned the art of green seeing from the children of the forest, and he's now mentoring Bran to do the same, and we'll look at this in our upcoming green seeing episode. But surely this would be a great way for George to convey some of this crucial information. Brendan has spent years seeing the past, present, and future through the Weirwood Network, not to mention his probable warging of animals. With question marks about the true nature of the undead cold hands and the notion that the others could be corrupted skin changers using similar skills, expect many great revelations to come from that cave during the winds of winter and beyond. Another source of information is Melisandre. We've discussed her beliefs about the Great Other, and it seems she's fated to oppose him until her dying breath. While she's often wrong in her interpretation of prophecy, she is at other times an exceptional sorceress who clearly knows a thing or two about the others. Given that we now have her point of view, expect to learn much and more about the Long Night, both the last one and the impending one, from Melisandre. And the third potential source is someone who's more associated with gathering information than wielding magic. Samuel Tarley has already been a major conduit of facts about the others, having researched them in the Castle Black Library. Well, now Sam is preparing to study at the Citadel of Old Town, so it's highly likely that George will have him uncover long-forgotten secrets pertaining to the Long Night. While Bran looks through the Weirnet to see the past, Sam looks through some dusty old tomes, and we can't wait to see what he discovers before returning to the Wall and informing the Night's Watch of all he's learned. Having already killed another and a white and lived to tell the tale, Tarly's set to cement his status as an unlikely hero in the greater story, playing a crucial role in the attempt to defeat the others. 
And finally, there's another potential source that readers can be forgiven for forgetting about. In fact, forgetting about this character is the whole point. In A Game of Thrones, Night's Watch First Ranger Benjen Stark is sent north of the Wall by Lord Commander Mormont to investigate the disappearance of Sir Waymar Royce. As we covered earlier, Benjen's ranging companions Jafer Flowers and Othor were found dead, or technically undead, near the Weirwood Grove north of the Wall. There has been no word from Benjen for two years in story, and while he might be considered dead by some characters, most readers are highly suspicious of the fact that we haven't seen a body. Yeah, and in true mystery writing form, without a body, we, like Rob Stark in A Game of Thrones, are not ready to give up on Benjen Stark just yet. If he is alive, it begs the question of what he's been up to all this time. There is the distinct possibility that he's been investigating the others north of the Wall, desperately gathering information that will one day fall onto our pages. Could he have gone to the lands of Always Winter? Will George give him a prologue or epilogue chapter and watch the fandom explode with excitement? With a character as mysterious as Benjen, all bets are off. One thing we can say for sure, though, is that he is not cold hands, as George has confirmed to his editor. So there are four likely sources to fill in some of the blanks about the others. But even when we know more about their nature, there remain yet more questions about the future plot. While it now seems inevitable that the others will make inroads into Westeros, fans wonder how they will get past the wall. Will the others go through it, over it, around it, or will the Horn of Joramon fulfil its legendary destiny and destroy the wall itself? One way or another, they'll march their undead army south. Fans wonder if a breach of the wall could end the winds of winter and leave Westeros poised on an icy cliffhanger going into a dream of spring. From there, we'll surely see some resistance to their advance as the question pivots from how the others will get through the wall to how far south they'll travel. While the Night's Watch and their supporters will surely give it all they have, perhaps armed with dragonglass arrowheads, flaming swords, and Valyrian steel, it seems likely that Danny's dragons will also have a crucial role to play. Can dragon fire hurt another? Can ice magic wound a dragon? Fire-made flesh clashing with ice-made flesh will be about as climactic as you can get. Seeing these two magical species face off against each other on our pages will surely be one of the most exciting moments in the saga. With dragons, dragon glass, and dragon steel, perhaps mankind will have the elemental weapons they need to defeat the others. But first, they'll need to put aside their differences, band together, and fight. And when they band together, it seems certain that the others will have to contend with Winterfell. Given that it's called Winterfell, there's the possibility that the last long night ended at that spot. At some ancient fort that served as a proto-Winterfell, later developed by Brandon the Builder. The Night's Watch vows state that we are the Watchers on the Walls plural, so it seems there was another bastion of defence during the last long night. If this site was at Winterfell, with its concentric ring walls, it would give the castle added symbolic depth. Given Winterfell will always feel like home, it would be a setting bearing great significance for readers and characters alike. 
it seems like a great place to stage a battle of enormous magnitude and importance. Today, we've attempted to organize what we know and what we don't know about the others into an order logical enough for you to better understand these exceptionally well-designed villains in A Song of Ice and Fire. We predict that in the winds of winter, George will be seeking to bring the others from the fringes and prepare them, and us, for their upcoming invasion. And as readers, we wait with bated breath for that moment to arrive. Thanks so much for joining us today for this episode all about the Icy Others. We'll be back soon with part two of our series on Arya Stark. But now, as always, it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for giving us ice zombies and their mysterious overlords. And thanks to Kevin McLeod for allowing us to use his music in our production. As usual, we'll end today with thanks to our patrons from the Castle Steel level. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron and you could be hearing your name here too. Our sincere thanks to AJ, Aegon Sixth, Alex, Ali B, Ali C, Amber, Ashanat Yara, Oakenfist, Bran the Builder, Brian, Camille, Casey, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Maddie and Jessica, Sir Clint the Andal, Sir Duncan Cole, Convenience or Death, Courtney, Sir Archibald Cadogan, David, Dimitri B, Dennis, Lady Diana Dane, Esme, Liz, Emily of the Eerie, Evan, Ezra, Felix, Sir Gage, Armorer of Castle Greyguard, Sir Gladworth, Sir Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort, History of Westeros, Jim McGeehan, Winter's King, John Aris, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Sonarion, the White Storm, Julie Beth of Tarth, Judson, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Katie, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Tree Girl, Sir Galahoo of what? Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lemba, Lomas Knight Rider, Survivor of the Yeen Sleepover, Nessie the Questing Beast, Mage Marmot, Monaro Geek TV, Maria, Margareta, and our cohort of Matts, Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, Matt L, Matt M, and Matt R, as well as Beatrix Rainfall, Maester Mary, Michael M, Anime Lover Nicole, Nimble Nick One Irick, Patrick, Peter Pebble, PJ, Paul B, Paul H, King Ray, first of his name, Richard, Schwartz the Black, Sam, Sarah, Sean, Sir Swift the Peppered Knight from the House of Black and Grey, Shari, Sheila, Cern, That Shiny Bastard, Terry, Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars, Hema Helminth, the Sellsword Sentinel, Valen Valentine, Maiden of the Black Frost, Virginie, Quarren Halfhand, and Yvonne. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal or coffee, and comment on our content there. Or find us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or email. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with a new episode. Bye for now.